to Digging Up Ancient Aliens. This is the podcast where we examine strange claims about alternative history and ancient aliens in popular media. Do the claims hold water to an archaeologist or are there better explanations out there? I'm your host, Frederick, and this is episode 37. This time things are going to be a little bit different. Questions and comments have come throughout the show. This episode will address some of these. If you have written a question or comment that's not covered here, don't worry, it will likely be in a future episode. This time, questions will cover various topics and locations ranging from South America to Egypt. Some will be about me, while others will be about pseudo-archaeological topics, such as melted stones or ancient Egyptian Wi-Fi. What we do miss is a correction, but... I actually have an update on a story that I did cover some time ago. Now, if you yourself have a question or a comment you want to share, the best way to get it to me is by email. The contact info can be found on diggingupancientaliens.com together with all the reference that we use for each and every episode. If email is not your thing, don't worry. I can usually be found in the comment section on the post made on social media. I also read the reviews that you leave, so if you like the podcast, I would really appreciate if you left one of those fancy five-star reviews they heard so much about. But with all of that out of the way, let's dig into the episode. I got a question from listener David, who wrote to me asking... Would you please comment on what appears to be melted stonework at this site in Peru and what might have done the damage? I know it wasn't a UFO that did it. With the question, I got a picture of an Inca water fountain at the site of Tambomachay. The fountain itself is uh, quite small, with the traditional Inca masonry in a cellular polygonal style, meaning we have stones with different shapes and forms fitted together. It's basically the first type of masonry that you will think about if you would picture an Inca building, so to say. Now, we have seen more elaborate fountains in Ollantaytambo, for example, as a site we covered back in episode 29, titled Aliens and Ancient Engineers. Tambo Mashai is not far from the city of Cusco and contains a lot of different waterwork. We find aqueducts, springs and fountain here and the actual function of the place is a little bit unclear and it can be speculated that it was either a noble retreat, a water temple or most likely a combination of several different things. What's impressive is that many of the fountains and aqueducts work even today. Now to get back to David's question, I thought he meant a set of rocks that can be seen on the left on the fountain. And if you want to see this, you should head over to the website of this episode, where I will post the picture so you also can see what we're talking about. Now due to the size of the picture, this part has kind of a wet sheen, which added 
for me at least, to a bit of a melted effect that I perceived. But the stone isn't melted, well, of course. By looking at another picture and comparing, it's evident that the stone has uh, suffered from pitting and erosion from the elements. David also realized this, but we actually looked at the different spots. He was talking about another section of the stoneworks that was also part of the natural rock. It seems as if the Inca builders, to save time, had incorporated some features of the natural outcroppings, but it turns out that these sections were of a lower quality than the stones that they brought in from a quarry. This site is a pretty good exercise in how the pareidolia effect worked. If instructed to find an anomaly, you will be more likely to see one, even if it does not exist. That's why people selling pseudoscience usually point out what you should look for and where you should look to see it to ensure that you actually will see or hear what they intend you to discover within the picture, sound, video or whatever they want to present. And if you would just get a picture where the melted stone isn't pointed out at all, you're likely to not see it and just write it off as a picture of a very beautiful fountain. So thank you, David, for this great reminder in how pareidolia and conditioning work on our minds. Then we have a question that took a bit longer than anticipated to answer and led me down a rabbit hole of potelemaic art, Egyptian perfume making and barbecue. It all started with an account called Transition Cat sending me a video from an Instagram creator named Billy Carson. We have not encountered Billy within the ancient alien context yet, but he seems to put himself in between extraterrestrials and lost civilizations. Carson is behind a pseudoscience streaming network named Forbidden Knowledge Incorporated. And 4 is written as the number 4, if you're not angry enough yet in the episode. And have been a talking head on shows like Ancient Civilization that's been aired on Gaia, another pseudoscientific network, a show that we probably will get to one of these days. Gaia is quite prolific in their quest to spread humbug. Now, Bill Carson has the tales of a quack and it becomes apparent in the video that he is not above making things up. Now, in the video, we can hear him make the following claim. They had an ancient quote-unquote web, so to speak, that existed in ancient times. As a matter of fact, when you go into the Temple of Horus in Egypt, there's a depiction of something that's really amazing. It's the Wi-Fi symbol emanating a frequency out of an Egyptian person's hand, showing that they had the capability of understanding frequencies through wireless technology. In the video, we see a depiction of a man holding a jar and what looks like the Wi-Fi symbol in his other hand. But there's a dots between each of the lines. My initial thought was that it was some sort of a drying rack. Now, in ancient Egyptian art, it's not really my speciality, but I try to do my best. After some more research, it kind of looked as if it could be a depiction of the essence of incense but that answer never really sat well with me so I continue to look. The depiction is located within the temple of Horus in Edfu. This temple is usually just referred to as the Edfu temple if you would 
try to look it up online and it's located between Aswan and Luxor in the town, of course, known today as Edfo. The ancient Egyptians, on the other hand, call this city for Jiba. The temple sits up on a older temple. Unfortunately, we don't know much about this earlier temple and one of the few things that actually was preserved is a Naus type of shrine from actually the last Egyptian pharaoh, Naktanebo II. A Naus shrine is a rectangular box with an opening, often for a statue. It kind of looks like a mini type of temple with a doorway. The Temple of Horus is one of the best preserved ancient Egyptian sites and thanks to its state of preservation we have a wealth of information about the temple and the people who built it, including their own words inscribed on the walls. We can learn a great deal on how they both constructed the temple and how the different rituals within the walls were conducted. The construction was first started by Ptolemy III in 237 BCE and the construction would take a whopping 180 years. The final addition to the temple was made by actually Cleopatra VII. Yeah, that is the famous Cleopatra's father, Ptolemy XII, and was finished in 57 BCE. And if we would stroll towards the temple, we would be met by two statues of Horus as a falcon on each side of the entrance. Behind them there are large entrance piling, and these consist of two decorated towers, large towers. We already see that the Ptolemaic art differs from the classic era, right here up front. Of course there are the traditional elements such as we can see Ptolemy XII smiting his enemies with a mace. We also see a scene on the top that's called Feast of the Beautiful Meeting in which Horus of Edfo is united with Hathor of Dendera. After passing the pylons we enter a peristyle courtyard showing the Greek influences of the temple. This yard is open to the sun in the center and has 32 columns supporting a short roof on the side. Kinda looks like an aquarium or gymnasium if you picture back ancient Greek structures. And on the walls we find several foundational texts within Egyptian mythology. Possibly most noteworthy is among them is um, Horus defeating the evil Seth. After this defeat, Horus takes the place of the ruler of Egypt. If we continue, we get two hypostay halls. And hypostay means that the room has several columns that support the roof of the building. As we make our way towards the Holy of Holy, our surrounding will become darker and darker. We are then getting into the offering hall where we can see the rites of the divine offering and the action that were supposed to occur with them. A table was most likely in here to prepare the offering to Horus and the other gods of the temple. We will return to this room momentarily since this site will be the key. To our Wi-Fi symbol. To the west and east of this room we find stairs symbolizing the sun's rising and setting. The god of the temple climbed the eastern staircase during the new year to see his sun disk 
and unite with his ba. He would later descend the western stairs, satisfied with his travels and taking his place within the temple. And further in we find a sanctuary where Horus' image would reside and more rooms for different types of storage. One of these are referred to as a laboratory or Lord of the Ointment's workshop. Within this room we find description of offerings of oils, perfumes and incense to the gods. We even find depictions of the pharaoh offering natron, one of the mummification's main ingredients. Almost all the offerings are made by Potelomy the sixth to the various god within this room. While the temple is mainly dedicated to Horus, the other gods were still honored here. We also find two recipes written on the wall of these rooms for a substance the Egyptians called kapet. Kapet was mainly used as a sort of incense and is uh, presumably one of the most famous prepared fragrances in ancient Egypt. The oldest mention of this preparation is in the pyramid text from Pharaoh Unas, who was part of the 5th dynasty. But the receipts we have preserved today is uh, quite few and a lot younger. But it means that this is an old and very vital tradition in ancient Egypt. In most of the literature, Kapet will be referred to as uh, the Greek translation, Kyphi. The word itself could be translated to a substance used in fumigation, a substance to be burnt or just as a scent. Kapet could also be used and not as incense but as a remedy for a myriad of different illnesses by the temple priests. The two recipes we find in the room is basically the same. The difference lies in the quantities and the names of the substances. One is called Recipe for Preparation of Excellent Kaifi for Divine Use and contains more illustrative terms than its alternative version. The one for divine use includes more of the expensive items compared to the just excellent kaifi. And if you want to create your own, you need just the following ingredients. Raisins from the oasis, wine, 2.5 liters, fresh horus eye, meaning oasis wine, sweet horus eye, that is basically honey. You need frankincense, myrrh, mastic, pine resin, sweet flag, asphalta sauce, camel grass, mint, cypress, juniper berries, pine kernels, tubernos cherville, and cinnamon. Mix and light it on fire to please your favorite gods. But what does all of this have to do with the Wi-Fi symbol? Now, don't worry. I will come to this right now. If we go online and try to find this symbol within this temple, the sources will usually claim that it's located within the perfume laboratory. So I spent a lot, and I mean a lot of time reviewing the different registers and reliefs within this room. And I read up on Egyptian perfume and incense making, but nowhere I could find this symbol within the literature or the bit depiction in the rooms. This was quite 
great sign that I had hit a dead end and that the sources online was very wrong about the location of this symbol. So I had to go back and try to figure out where the scene could be found within the temple. And looking at some tourist video, I managed to find out the scene was located within the offering room that we mentioned earlier. At this point, I reached out to Annalisa Baer, who creates a lot of excellent videos on ancient Egypt and a variety of different topics over at TikTok. Together, we managed to find a bit of more info, but especially we found Dr. Karina van der Hoeven, who did her dissertation on the coronation ritual of the falcon at Edfu. And this seems to be a very fascinating book regarding the function and composition of ritual texts within the Ptolemaic Egypt. And it's supposed to be published later this year. So if you're into Egyptology, this seems to be a great read and put up that on your wish list for later. Dr. van der Hoeven was kind enough to help me even further and I finally could find out what this symbol was. Now the scene is described in Emile Cassion's Le Temple de Edfou, volume 9 on plate 35b, published in 1929. And it turns out that the Wi-Fi symbol can be found on each side of the door of the southern wall of this room. And you can also spot it on the eastern wall in another offering scene. If you know how to read hieroglyph and ancient Egyptian, of course, you will learn that the accompanied texts talk about how the gods are offered meat and fat from butchered animals. And with this in mind, we head over to Gardiner's sign list and look up sign F43, which is the Egyptian word shipped. Translate this to English and we get the word ribs. So what we see is the gods getting an offering of a jar of animal fat and a cut of meat, in this case ribs. Whether or not they were barbecued and honey glazed is not evident from the text. So the ancient Egyptians did not have Wi-Fi. This story shows the importance of experts like Annalisa Baer and Dr. Karina van der Hoeven. While you can read up on things, nothing you ultimately beats the true experts in their field. As for caution claims, it's clearly spun out of thin air. And this is not actually the first time we encounter this temple. Another scene in the temple is claimed by Derek Olson from Megalithic Marvels to depict levitation devices in ancient Egypt. For more about that, you should head over to YouTube where I publish some extra stuff from time to time. Megalithic Marvels and Derek Olson are posting a lot of different pseudoscientific claims and selling overpriced tours of misinformation in South America and Egypt. But there we have it. And I'm sorry, Transition Cat, for the delayed answer, but we managed to find out what it was in the end, at least. I'm just going to pause the episode here and thank you, my dear listener, for tuning in. It's great having you here exploring the world of pseudoscience with me. If you want to support the cause of educating people and combating pseudoscience, I'd like if you become a Patreon or a paid subscriber of the show. For as little as 250 per episode, which is less than what the Loch Ness Monster asked for, you will help me continue producing high-quality content and gain access to a treasure trove of exclusive bonus material. Imagine! 
the benefits of becoming a paid subscriber where you gain VIP access to our exclusive pseudoscientific book club. You will have the opportunity to hear me read and discuss the works of our favorite on-screen experts for you. To sign up and become a paid subscriber, simply head over to diggingupancientaliens.com support. You will find all the information you need to join our community there. Your backing of the program would empower me to create more content that assists people while keeping the show as accessible as possible. So let's combat misinformation and pseudoscience together. Just head over to diggingupancientaliens.com support to sign up. Together, we will uncover the truth one episode at a time. Viewer Torfin wrote as a comment to our episode about Graham Hancock's Netflix series, Ancient Apocalypse. We covered that in four episodes, both as a podcast and over on YouTube. Now, Torfin wrote, did he get it wrong or did he just lie? Never attribute to ignorance what can better be attributed to greed. Now, this is a question I wrestle with myself. Should we accuse these fringe authors of being liars and peddlers of disinformation? I'm a bit unsure and I tend to go a bit back and forth on it. Calling someone a liar will put this person in a defensive stance, making reach them a lot harder. The end goal is not for them to continue writing these fringe stories. The end goal should be be that they see reason and the errors of their past ideas and you know join our side so to say michael marshall editor of the skeptic magazine uk and host of be reason has an excellent approach on how he gets to these type of people and if you have the patient i recommend to go and listen to be reasonable where he invite people who have these really fringe ideas and discuss their topics with them in a quite pedagogic and educational way. And I also discussed the concept of pedagogy of luck with Aaron Rabinovitz back in episode 26. And Rabinovitz is also of the view that we should use compassion and empathy to change people's mind, mainly because not everyone actually have the luck of having both the education and access to information that we have already come to this conclusion have and have had but we can help people suffering from a lack of education and they are victims of this information to get to a point where they can find reliable and good information and usually you don't really get there with ridicule mockery and pushing them towards the wall accusing them of being liars so this isn't a question with a black or white answer. The best approach is, as far as I concern, isn't really 100% known yet. We should note that it varies from person to person. The journey to leave pseudoscience is long and it will differ between different persons depending on who you ask, their experience and, well, what triggered them. Some will respond to mockery while others, it will just push them deeper into the conspiracy crowd. Now, feel free to message me with your opinion or experience on the matter. I'm happy to hear from all of you. My position is not solid. I think some ridicule might be good, 
but I believe more that we should have, for the most part, a bit of empathy, compassion, and maybe I'll use these pseudoscientific topics as um, entertainment more, as Dr. David Kinkella, who also been on the show, seems to suggest that we should use them not to ridicule, but for fun, as fun idea, fun thought experiments, put them in games, put them in media where they belong and make it uh, more as a real type of fantasy, so to say, that we really cement the idea that these are made up ideas. They're fun, fun to play with, fun to watch, but yeah, they aren't really real. I think that might be helpful. So yes, I'm a bit torn and and right now I think several of these types of position might be beneficial. But as long as we don't have evidence that they are actually lying and intentionally spreading disinformation, we should maybe select a bit kinder track towards them. Some of the writers are true believers and have been hoodwinked themselves, but um, when we know that they are actively deceiving while not believing, we should definitely go after them a little bit harder. Our next question comes from listener Anne and it's not really related to pseudoscience. Any wondering if I have been on an excavation and faced something dangerous? You know, like Indiana Jones and all the other stuff. Well, Indiana Jones is a bit of some nice movie, movie entertainment. And uh, I think the reason why actually some of us become a archaeologist, but... To be honest, I don't have the really fancy or exciting excavation stories as some others have. I don't have slept with uh, leopards or panthers like uh, Dr. Andrew Kinkella or been uh, wading through the jungle or going into uh, lost Egyptian graves. The most dangerous thing I have dealt with on an excavation might be well, heat stroke, <laughs> or or rather, there was at one point I was at an excavation on Gotland, and there was we were excavating around a mound from the Bronze Age, trying to find some sort of cult site or more graves within the area. The excavation was quite kind of a bust; we didn't find much of anything. Bit of charcoal, some stone tools. Other than that, we didn't really find anything close to what we were expecting from our phosphate inventory that we took on the site. But during excavations, you kind of living it not rough. I mean, we had maybe an hour drive home or so, but we was out in a field. There's uh, different pens around us. And from the start when we got there, these pens had been completely empty. And when you're on excavation, you don't really have access to toilets or, yeah, the body wasn't much. We had a porta potty, but yeah, if you were going number one, it was usually preferred to do that somewhere in the bushes. Very rough living, something you maybe should be a little bit prepared for if you want to be an archaeologist. Anyway, I needed to um, visit the said bushes, so I decided to head into one of the pens that's for a long time had been empty because it had a little hill that you could go over and be have your bit of private moment all by yourself. So I was standing there, minding my own business, and suddenly I felt watched. 
And I look back and I see maybe 10 young bulls behind me, maybe a couple hundred meters. I think to myself, this doesn't look great. So I start finish up. I start to walk towards the electric fence. They start to move. And then they start to move a bit faster. I start to move a little bit faster. It's not far. And then they start to run. I can clearly hear them beside me. And I start to run too. And I just dive under the electric fence and just skid over into safety. And they stop and then just look at us. Ever since, every morning when we come, the bulls stood by the fence looking at this until we left when they seem to leave the area too. So yeah, that's among the dangerous stuff I managed to do. <laughs> Maybe getting a tick or two too. But yeah, that's the worst I have suffered. Now the next section is not really a question, but a case where additional information has been found. A while back I did a YouTube video called Alfred Isaac Milton, the greatest explorer that never existed. If you watch that clip, don't worry, I will not repeat it, but I will give an extended version of it here. I have uncovered some new details of the story's origin that I think you will be interested in anyways. So this section is going to be about AI-generated images and stories. You might have seen a recent report on social media accompanied by all-timey pictures of the great explorer Alfred Isaac Milton. The spelling varies with one or two D's in the last name, and the pictures are usually accompanied by a story that goes something like this. British explorer Alfred Isaac Milton traveled to the farthest reaches of the globe, during the late 19th century in search of zoological, botanical, and archaeological wonders. This recent unearthed photograph helped to shed light on some of his amazing discoveries during several missions to then uncharted regions of Southeast Asia, Africa, and the Amazon rainforest. Unfortunately, all of his journals and scientific writings were lost in 1901, when Milton and his team vanished during a Sumatran expedition to uncover the fabled lost city of Davli II. Due to these tragic events, scant details are known about what you see in these fascinating photos. Picture this. A mysterious story is with clues hidden in plain sights. And it starts with the protagonist's name, A.I. Milton, which seems innocent enough, but Take a closer look and you will see it's a clue to the story's origin. Artificial Intelligence Milton. Add in the city of Davli 2, a play on the name Dali 2, and suddenly the mystery deepens or becomes clearer. Not sure. The author doesn't stop there. The story's construction is downright clever. You see, Milton wasn't just a name plucked from thin air. It was the name of a real-life archaeologist and museum director during the 1800s, John Henry Milton to be exact. And get this, in 2011 an archaeological society was named after him. It's almost as the author is trying to make the story more believing by using the name that resembles a genuine person. 
It's little details like that that makes this story so intriguing. Who knows what other secrets is waiting to be uncovered? Now, some of the stories seem to be inspired by the adventurer Percy Fawcett, who we will get to into a moment, and a document called Manuscript 512. The document's real name is Relicao Historia de Humana Occulta e Grande Povacao Antigusimas e Moradores que se Describnio no año de 1753, or in English, historical relation of an occult large, very old settlement with no inhabitants that was found in the year 1753. The record was discovered in 1839 in the National Library of Brazil by Manuel Ferreira Lagos. All in all, the manuscript contains 12 pages written by an unknown author and seems to be part of a letter. The tale within the pages follow a group of banditerantes, another name for slavers slash explorers in Brazil, and the discovery of an abandoned city in the state of Bahia. The story's short version goes as follow. As a journey through the rugged terrain, a contingent led by a Portuguese colonel chanced upon a breathtaking sight. A deserted settlement perched atop a high mountain range. The entrance to this mysterious city was adorned with a Roman-looking triple archway etched with cryptic inscription of an unknown language, shrouding the place in an aura of enigma. As they ventured further into the city, they come upon a square dominated by a black pedestal, bearing a statue of a man pointing resolutely northwards. An expansive building, resplendent with intricate reliefs and inlaid works depicting crosses, crows and other intricate designs loom nearby. The magnificent strip portio was graced by a relief carving of a half-naked figure sporting a laurel crown imbuing the place with an air of regal majesty. Undaunted, the group explored the abandoned mineshaft and were astounded to discover rocks infused with silver, an inscription that defied their attempts of decipherment. Their discovery of a sprawling countryside manor was even more astonishing, replete with untold secrets and mysteries waiting to be uncovered. In the quest for Richard, they tested the soil near the nearby river and were rewarded with a bounty of gold flecks. Despite the allure of wealth, the author pauses to reflect on the deserted city's strange and curious state and marvels at the fauna that now inhabits the ruins. As the group searched the town, one of the expedition members found a remarkable treasure one gold coin, portraying a young boy kneeling on one side and a bow, arrow and a crown on the other. As we delve deeper into the annals of history, we often find that the intersection of naturalism and alternative history is a theme that rears its heads time and time again. And so it was when the Brazilian Historic and Geographic Institute received the details of the enigmatic manuscript 512. 
with hopes of uncovering evidence of a Greco-Roman culture to bolster the newly formed Brazilian identity, expeditions were launched in search of the lost city. The manuscript portrayed the details. Alas, all efforts were in vain. But the document's legacy would prove to be far-reaching. Manuscript 512 become a source for inspiration of many in the arts and literature. Perhaps most famously, it was the foundation of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's novel The Lost World, published in 1912. And it was also entwined with the lore of Percy Fawcett's search for the lost city of Zed. Within the realm of alternative history, tall tales and half-truths often are used to capture the public's imagination. One such account involves the supposed catch of documents kept by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's assistant, which is always unnamed within the, these accounts. However, there are a couple of holes within this narrative. Some article of Dubin's audience claimed that this assistant either sent or received an email about these documents to or from the British consulate. But considering that we know that Doyle's assistant was Alfred H. Wood and a man who died in 1941, the likelihood of such email is basically slim to none. But all of these lead us to Lieutenant Colonel Percy Fawcett. A fascinating person who even might be the main inspiration for the Indiana Jones character. Fawcett also became friends with author Conan Doyle, who based some of his novels on the Fawcett character. Percy Fawcett was a man cut from a different cloth. After retiring from the military in 1906, he becomes obsessed with exploring the uncharted wilderness with Brazil. In a time when being adventure was an actual job title, Fawcett mounted seven expeditions between 1906 and 1924, earning himself a reputation of being a very capable explorer. Fawcett had a different approach towards the indigenous people of the Amazon compared to the other explorers. He often treated the locals respectfully and patiently offering gift on contact to get a better acceptance among the different tribes that he met. And this set him somewhat apart from the other explorers in the area. But even a man like Fawcett couldn't escape the pull of war. When World War I broke out, he re-enlisted at the age of 50, leaving his exploration behind and headed back to Britain. But in 1925, Fawcett embarked on his final expedition to find the city of Zed. Accompanied by his son Jack and Fawcett's friend Rayleigh Rimler, they were last seen on May 29, 1925, entering the jungle in search of the lost city. Despite numerous search and rescue missions, no trace of Fawcett or his team was ever found. And their disappearance remains a mystery. The last known location of the party was the Horseshoe Camp, where Fawcett wrote one of its last known letters. The theories around Fawcett's disappearance range from dying from starvation, exhaustion, and being killed by one of the tribes in the area, to the more 
fantasy filled like sucked into a time warp or being kidnapped by aliens in the most likelihood he got hit by a disease or had an accident that killed him but in 1979 Fawcett's signet ring turned up in a pawn shop within the small city of Cuiaba located in the southwest of Brazil this of course led to speculation that the bandits were behind his disappearance but until we find the expedition bodies we won't really have any specific answers but the jungle have claimed people in the past and will continue to do so in the future. Looking at pictures of Percy Fawcett we're met with a grave man with a steely gaze. He could almost be likened to a mysterious wilderness guide living off the land keeping to himself in a sort of Victorian post-apocalyptic world. It's also abundantly clear that Fawcett is the inspiration for the stories when we look at the pictures accompanying the post. Among the photos is a portrait of a man with a beard, a straight nose and a piercing stare, wearing a pith helmet. And if we compare this face to the picture we have of Fawcett, there is no doubt that this portrait was based on Fawcett's photographs. Now, I warn you, dear listener, that Some don't let facts get in the way of a good story in the world of alternative history. We have seen it before and we will see it again. Sensationalist blog like Lost Books and Mysteries Unsolved have been quick to jump on the Milton bandwagon. But let's take a closer look on their supposed sources, shall we? Now, they claim a book called the lost casket of Davli to supposedly contain the story of Middleton, gold statues and the lost city. They even named the author, a Frenchman named Fortune de Boisugo Bay. But here's the thing, folks. While Fortune de Boisbouguet was a real author, he never wrote about Davli to or Alfred Isaac Middleton. In 1881, the Boisbouglet published a book called La Main Coupe, or in its English translation is called The Lost Casket. This book is available on the Internet Archive and the Gutenberg Project for free, but I must warn you, it is not as exciting as these alternative history blogs makes it out to be. So just with all this knowledge we could be pretty confident when declaring the story and the pictures to be a hoax. But all of this research might have been a bit of an overkill since we now do know who did create both the account and the photos. On July 29, 2022, visual effects supervisor Mitch Gate posted on his Facebook wall. The post got little traction compared to later reposts, but it is the origin of the whole concept. The post even contained the hashtag MidJourney. And Mitch Gates had created quite a lot of these AI-generated pictures. One set depicts what we are supposed to think is a set for the fake moon landing conspiracy theory while another explores a hypothetical future where artificial intelligence have replaced human creativity, leading to the downfall of art store and has a displacement of creative professionals. Now, these thought-provoking images offer a unique perspective on the impact of technological advancement 
on society and the arts. On August 3rd, 2022, Mitch Gate even complained about another share who forgot the credit. So it seems the quite clear that we have the story of Alfred Isaac Milton right here with Mitch. And from what I can tell, it was never intended to fool somebody or try to deceive people. It was a fun thought experiment visualized by Midjourney with some tongue-in-cheek text added to give the pictures a additional flavor. If you're closer at the photograph made by Gates, you will notice a lot of IA artifacts and this seems to not have been edited afterward. AI, at least at this point, also struggled with portraying humans. So all portraits or pictures containing people looks odd to the human eye. But as the technology advances, this might not be the case in the future and something you will need to keep an eye on. While we have struggled with Photoshop for some time, AI has the potential for even more hoaxes. Gone are the days when a picture could be accepted as is as evidence. The Generation 5 of Midjourney can create photorealistic renderings of prompts you feed them on a level that's uh, it's really tough to really tell it apart from reality. So if you don't trust the source, you should definitely not trust any pictures from there. Even if it's a trusted source, you must do some investigation before you accept it is, since the source could have been duped themselves. While being a skeptic has become even more challenging, we should take pride that it's never been more critical to be one. This would have been where I told you, listener, that all of this was written by an AI, like Eli Bosnick's Citation Needed episode on ChatGTP. And I did try to use ChatGTP to write this at first. Fortunately, or maybe unfortunately, Gates created the Milton story too recently, so it's not really part of what ChatGTP knows. So I tried giving it the information I wanted to use, but the issue was that the AI started to make things up anyway, to a point where it started to create even more sources for Alfred Isaac Milton that don't exist. And when I call the bot out on it, I only get excused and it would try to do better in the future. So the AI tool is great if you really, really know the material you work with and just trying to improve your text maybe. But as a research assistant or even worse, as a replacement for Google, it can be outright dangerous. While we have the word intelligence. This is just a type of bot. We must remember it doesn't really understand thing and can't separate between a good and bad source or information. And this was what we had this time around. Due to a vacation, the next episode won't release until the end of May. So I will have some time to breathe and collect myself before starting to get things back out there. There's a lot of episodes you can listen to in the meantime and make sure to check out my YouTube channel if you want to get some extra stuff in there. Before you know it, we will be back with more silly aliens and more interesting history. But till then, remember to leave a positive review anywhere you can, such as iTunes, Spotify or even better, to your friends. I would also recommend visiting diggingupancientaliens.com to find more info about me and the podcast and... You also find me on all social media sites and take the opportunity, send in your comments, corrections or suggestions or just say hi. 
send an email. You find the contact info on the website. And you find all the sources and resources used to create this episode on our the same website. You will also find further reading suggestions if you want to learn more about the subjects we bring up. Sandra Mertelor created the intro music and our outro is by the band Trallskruv who sings the song Tinfoil Hat. Links to both of these artists will be found in the show notes. Until next time, keep shoveling that science. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode. Remember that we have a subscription going on. You can become a patron or other subscriber for as little as $2.50 per episode. Go to diggingupancientaliens.com support. That is, go to diggingupancientaliens.com support to read more information and sign up right there. 